following message was recorded at Antioch Presbyterian Church, an historic and charter congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America, ministering to upstate South Carolina since 1843. Come and visit us at the crossroads of Greenville and Spartanburg counties. Experience our past and be a part of our future. For more information, visit AntiochPCA.com. Lesson one, we did an intro. Then we spent two weeks going through the whys of suffering, general reasons for suffering. Uh, last week, this week, we we're going by the whys of suffering, suffering for God's glory. Now, I'm spending so much time on this because this is the number one charge against Christianity and the number one charge against the Christian God. Why is there pain and suffering in a world created by a good, caring, loving God? Okay. And to understand that, this is, I think, probably the more complex portion of the course. To understand it, we have to totally understand the character of God himself and the character of natural unregenerate man and regenerate man. Next three weeks, we're going to cover our third why of suffering, Job's why. And then we'll look at death and then suffering. And our last two classes are going to be on the greatest comfort you can possibly have in periods of suffering and pain and approaching death, which are assurance of your salvation and how can I know for sure that I'm a Christian, okay? Now, the whys of suffering we started looking at, part two, suffering for God's glory. We raised three questions, okay? Isn't God's passion for His own glory a rather self-centered and selfish thing? Two, how can God decree pain and suffering for His children with the stated goal of its being for His own glory and still be a loving and caring Father to them? And three, the big question, why is it necessary for God to use pain and suffering in the first place? Now, we made two assertions that we were going to go through proven to answer those two questions. First, God is sovereign over all pain and suffering. And we gave sufficient proof of that. Second, we made the assertion that whenever God seeks His own glory in sending pain and suffering and affliction to a child of His, <clears throat> He is at the same time seeking that child's highest good and happiness. And we claim that God's glory and His children's highest good and happiness are so intertwined that an increase in one will correspondingly increase the other. And then we ask the question, the big question, how can that possibly be? And we're looking at several different ways it can possibly be. We said first, one way this can be is to acknowledge that God Himself has limitations on what He can do. Okay? God cannot die, God cannot lie, so on like that. One limitation is that God can never go against or act contrary to His own basic inner nature because God's being is itself in every attribute in the highest state of perfection and holiness. He has to always act in accord with this because 
any step down from this would be just that, a step down. So he always has to act in accord with his inner core nature and his attributes and what he is. And this is very significant because if two of God's inner core characteristic attributes are those of love and goodness, then we know for sure that God would never do anything that is not loving or good for his children. Because all of his actions, all of his decrees, including death, suffering, pain, proceed from and are filtered through his inner core attributes of goodness and love, which means that any pain or suffering he sends to them only work to their benefit and good. Now, this doesn't tell us why we have pain and suffering, but it does tell us that God's motive in sending them is for their own good and betterment. Okay? Very important point. God must and only can act out of love and for the good. This has a great impact on the question, our question number two, as well as question number one. If God is loving and caring in all that He does concerning His children, then how can He send pain and suffering to them? And we're going to look at that very shortly. But for right now, we're looking at the question, isn't God's passion for His own glory self-centered and selfish? That's questions asked all the time. Okay, we would reply, God's passion for His own glory is rightfully and righteously self-centered. We talked about that last week. But as we will see, especially where His children are concerned, God's passion for His glory never has been and never could be a selfish thing in a pejorative sense. He would never afflict us with pain and suffering just for His own glory with no thought at all for our own welfare and benefit. Now, we want to say, well, how can this be also? All right. We started looking at two books, one by Jonathan Edwards, The End for Which God Created the World, and one by John Piper, God's Passion for His Glory. And Piper's book also contains the entirety of Edwards' book within it. Now, Edwards asserts that God created the world for two purposes. Again, to understand this, we have to know the character of God, the motives of God, the attributes of God, and the same about man. Edwards asserts God created the world for two reasons. One, that He might display the manifestation of His glory to the creatures He has made. Number two, that His emanating glory that goes out from Him would be received, praised, and enjoyed by the creatures He has made. In this sum, God's manifestation of His glory and man's increased joy and happiness are two points joined together toward the same end. Okay, let me read you Piper's words on this. Piper says, <clears throat> Virtually everything I preach and write and do is shaped by this truth that the exhibition of God's glory and the deepest joy of human souls are one thing. Keep in mind what I am illustrating. 
The farther up you go in the revealed thoughts of God, the clearer you see that God's aim in creating the world was to display the value of His own glory and that this aim is no other than the endless, ever-increasing joy of His people in that glory. Again, how does that happen? It happens because we, as redeemed and reconstituted creatures with new hearts given to us by God, now have souls that are most satisfied in God, rejoice in God above everything else, and derive great pleasure and happiness from beholding God's glory. Now, try to picture this. This sets up <clears throat> a reciprocal, circular relationship between us and God. God is glorified in the display of His handiwork, both in the universe and in us. As His glory emanates, flows out, diffuses outward from Himself, it is received, praised, and enjoyed by us, His creatures, who derive great happiness from it. <clears throat> and the third point, most wonderfully, God Himself receives back delight and happiness from His creatures, happiness and rejoicing in Him and in His handiwork, not because it was something He wanted or needed, but because He simply chose to receive it and delight in it. Does that make sense? Everybody see what I'm saying, where I am? Now, again, we want to understand fully how this can be. To do that, we have to also look at man, okay? And two biblical truths we want to grasp about natural, unregenerate man. First, there's no true happiness and good for man to be found outside of God. God and God alone is man's good. And we're going to show how that is. Second, <clears throat> the Christian's personal relationship with God must be and is of an extraordinarily deep nature. Okay? Now again, let's keep in mind, what are we talking about here? The question we are now asking is question two. Do all of God's displays of His glory at the same time seek His children's highest good and happiness? We're going to come to the why there's pain and suffering, question three, after we get through this one. Now, looking at how this can be concerning natural unregenerate man, I want to remember two things we said. First, all natural unregenerate men are dead in trespasses and sin. They're not sick. They're dead. Uh, and will never look or search for God on their own. The second, not only are natural unregenerate men dead in trespasses and sin, but there's also absolutely no inherent good whatsoever to be found anywhere in natural unregenerate man to attract God's attention. Again, unless God had sovereignly moved to redeem them, they would never have chosen or decided for Him. The implications of these two assertions for understanding the nature of our relationship with God and how God can seek His own glory and our ha highest happiness at the same time 
are monumental because they show us first, if we're to have any relationship with God at all, He will have to establish it in us and for us and do it on His own terms, okay? Second, since there is no good whatsoever to be found in natural unregenerate man, any good that comes to reside in him, in their spirit, in their nature, will have had to been put there by God himself because he is the only other source in the universe. Okay? It's not in us. It has to be in and from him. In short, as we said, God is our good. Now, I know I'm talking to a PCA audience here led by Dr. Piper and Zach, but I'm just going to give you a few verses anyway to prove what I'm saying. All right. Natural unregenerate men are dead in trespasses and sins. And unless God sovereignly moves to redeem them, they would never come. No man can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. John 6. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. But as many as received him to them, he gave the right to become children of God to those who believed in his name, who were born not of blood, not of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one man, even our father Isaac, for the children not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand not of works, but of him who calls. It was said to her, the older shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. We love him because he first loved us. Our second, men are dead and trespasses and sin. There's no good whatsoever in them. Romans 7, 18, Paul says, For I know that in me... That is, in my flesh, nothing good dwells. Jesus Christ said, It is the Spirit who gives life, the flesh profits nothing. What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. We have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are like under sin, as it is written. There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. There is none who does good, no, not one. I had a friend of mine who said they were going to start a seeker church, so I should, told him they should name it the Church of None, because it says there's none who seeks after God. He didn't think it was funny. Uh, but the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them, because they are spiritually discern the carnal mind is enmity against God, and so on, like you go on forever. Now, what we're seeing here, if there's going to be any relationship between man and God at all, He will have to establish it for us and set the terms of it and the conditions of it Himself, because natural unregenerate man is incapable of even noticing the glory of God, much less responding to it. As there is no good whatsoever to be found in man, we would say again, all good that comes to man comes from God. He's the only other source of it. God is our 
good. Now, I want to also look at the origin, nature, and the extent of the Christian's personal relationship with God. Again, this to help understand how it can be that any display of God's glory results in an increase in man's happiness. Now, if you're going to have a relationship of any kind, two or more people are going to have a relationship of any kind. It can only happen in one of two ways, all right? Number one, they mutually decided to have a relationship, each agreeing to the relationship. Marriage is a good example of that. Number two, one party imposes the relationship on another. Now, this is sometimes called a suzerain treaty. Is that the right pronunciation, Joe? Okay, suzerain treaty, relationship. In a suzerain-style treaty, one party establishes a relationship without the consent of the other and exercises control over them whether they're willing or not. Might even allow them some varying degrees of freedom, but it will vary one country taking over and occupying another country in war is a kind of suzerain treaty. Now, the nature of our relationship with God is of the second or suzerain type. As a matter of fact, we've had two treaties with Him. In the first, God created us without asking us beforehand if we wanted to be created or if we wanted to have a relationship. Okay? Rather, upon our first parents' creation, God immediately established a suzerain relationship with them. And as they were the federal heads of all their descendants, He established it with all future humanity of well. What was the stipulation? And the Lord commanded the man, saying, Of the tree, every tree in the garden you shall freely eat, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall die. Both our first parents disobeyed God's command, one through being deceived, the other doing so knowingly and willfully. As a result, their existing relationship with God was immediately and completely broken, both immediately coming to fear Him and trying to hide from Him. As a result of this breach of the suzerain treaty, they spiritually died the instant they disobeyed, and immediately began the process of physical decay that would lead to death. Physical death was delayed only because God, being merciful, chose not to impose it immediately, but to allow time for His grace and mercy to be extended. And so rather than leaving man to their own self-imposed penalty and destruction, God in His mercy and grace established a second suzerain-type treaty with them and with all future humanity, this a covenant of grace. Now, in doing so, and this is what we need to grasp, we don't think about this enough. In doing so, He redeemed us, He gave us an entirely new heart a heart that is able to recognize His glory and a heart that is fit for Him Himself to dwell in. The one requirement is the exercising of saving faith on our part. 
Now, we looked at the origin and nature of the Christian's relationship with God. We want to now look at a very, very important part of it, the depth and the extent of this relationship. Again, we're seeking to find out how God's displaying His glory can equal an increase in our good. Many Christians have never really thought a lot about the nature of their relationship with God, which is really quite a marvelous relationship full of wonders. All Christians, of course, know God as their creator. They know that He redeemed them from slavery to sin at a great personal price to Himself. But as wonderful as our creation and our redemption by God are, there's still a great deal more to our personal relationship with God that goes way beyond that. For one thing, God the Father, the Creator of the universe, has legally and forensically adopted you into His family and bidden you to call Him Father with all the personal endearment that that term implies. God the Son your Savior, your kinsman redeemer, now your elder stepbrother, is in a very real spiritual union with you, and you are a part of His bride, the church. God the Holy Spirit, the agent of your regeneration, your new birth, replaced your old heart of stone with a new heart of flesh, gave you the gifts of repentance and faith, guides your sanctification, actually resides within you and keeps you at all times. Back when I was a young man, I was very much involved in pornography. Trapped in it. Became a Christian, the guy told me, remember every time you look at a pornographic picture going into the movie, you're carrying God the Holy Spirit in there with you to watch it with you. Boy, if that doesn't sober you up, make you have a change of attitude, nothing will. That's something we need to think about in all our lives when we do things. We're taking the Holy Spirit in there with us. Okay? So, all three members of the Christian Trinity have a big part in our personal relationship with God, which is so intimate and so close that we're told by the Apostle Luke one of the most marvelous things in the Bible, in Him we live and move and have our being. Okay? How wonderful is that? Notice our it God, for God on our part, no good at all within us. God Himself redeemed us from the breaking of our first treaty. God Himself gave us an entirely new reconstructed heart, established another treaty with us, gave Himself to be the foundation and guarantor of this new treaty, and became the source of any good that we have within us. Why? Because He simply chose to do so. 
no good whatsoever in us to attract him. He just chose to set his love on us and delight in us. Nothing in our makeup, for I know that in me that is in my flesh, there nothing good dwells. It's a spirit who gives life flesh profits. Nothing. Indeed, at the time of his choosing us, we were his enemies and at enmity with him. Pure, unmerited, undeserved, unasked for grace, love, and mercy. Such is the nature of our relationship with God, all of which have vast implications as to how any display of God's glory serves to increase our good and happiness. Now, another point. Here's something I notice a lot of Christians don't think about. I didn't think about it for a long time myself. Showing the nature of our deep relationship with God. Okay? When we were justified, there was two imputations that took place. A lot of people just think of the first. Okay? The imputation of our sins to Christ on the cross. Forensic, judicial, occurring in God's court. God legally and forensically imputed, accounted, or as we say in the South, reckoned all of our sins to Christ. Left us not guilty. Second imputation, perfect righteousness of Christ to our account. What did this do? This made us to be righteous. It's a foreign righteousness to be sure. It's not inherent within us, but God imputed the righteousness of Christ to our account, which means what? Which means that when God looks at any of us, okay, in judgment or otherwise, He doesn't see our sins, but He sees the righteousness of His Son, Jesus Christ, in His own handiwork. So due to God's two legal imputations, we are not only not guilty, but are also Righteous. So think about this. Your relation with Christ, you're in true spiritual union with Him. You're part of His bride, the church. You are covered with His righteousness such that when God looks at you, He doesn't look at your sins, doesn't see them, doesn't even remember them, He says. Okay? Truly is it said that in Him we live and move and have our being. God originally made us for this extraordinary relationship with Himself. He restored it to us after our corruption and fall, and now He seals it with our adoptions, spiritual union, and indwelling, so we can see how this reciprocal relationship we mentioned works. God is glorified in the display of His handiwork both in us and in the universe. His glory emanates, flows out, and diffuses outward from Himself, is received, praised, and enjoyed by us, His creatures, with the close relationship we have, who derive great happiness from any display of His glory. God Himself receives back delight and happiness because of our delight and happiness in His glory and from our exercising faith and trust in Him. Okay? As Edward says, the love of God for sinners 
is not His making much of them, but graciously freeing and empowering them to enjoy making much of Him. And again, if God would do us good, He must direct us to His worth, not ours. That's why a display of His glory is our good. Now, in this we have not only an answer to the second question about it, I mean the first question of it being selfish, but also an answer to the reciprocal relationship. Here's what we would say. I want to read you a couple of quotes from Edwards. All right? When we see that God's passion for His own glory leads Him to share that passion with us, we also see why His passion for Himself is not selfish in the pejorative sense. God is the one being in the universe for whom self-exaltation is the highest virtue and the most loving act. Because in exalting Himself, He displays the one reality in the universe that can satisfy our souls. And He shares the very passion for that reality that satisfies Him. The object of our happiness is God, and our happiness is God's happiness. No greater happiness can be conceived. One more paragraph. God, in seeking His glory, seeks the good of His creatures, because the emanation of His glory implies the happiness of His creatures, and in communicating His fullness for them, he does it for himself because their good which he seeks is so much in union and communion with himself. God is their good. Their excellency and happiness is nothing but the emanation and expression of God's glory. God in seeking their glory and happiness seeks himself and in seeking himself, i.e. himself diffused, seeks their glory and happiness. As we said, whenever God seeks His own glory in us, even in pain and suffering, He's just as committed to seeking our eternal and ever-increasing joy in Him as He is to His own glory. Now, this is a complex relationship. I would urge you to get John Piper's book, God's Passion for His Glory, which contains the full text of Edwards' book, The End for Which God Created the World. It goes through and explains. I've tried to do it. I went over it with my wife. It's just understandable. It's, you know, it's something you have to really pour over. Now, our friend questioner says, okay, okay. I can accept that any display of God's glory also accomplishes his own children's highest good and happiness. But what I still want to know, how do we glorify God in our pain and suffering, and why does he need to use pain and suffering in the first place? Okay? Two good questions. How do we glorify God in our pain and suffering? Well, hopefully over the last five sessions, including this one, We've established and come to believe in our three oft-repeated crucial truths. God really is good. God really loves His children. God really is fully worthy of our faith and trust in Him. 
because we believe these three things, we can glorify God in our pain and suffering by exercising faith and trust in Him no matter what our circumstances, even prolonged pain and suffering. We're not saying you quit praying for relief. <laughs> you don't do that. You keep praying for relief. But you want to exercise patient endurance through trusting and believing in God and His goodness, love, and that He's worthy of our trust. Final question. Why is it necessary for God to use pain and suffering to achieve His glory and my highest good? Well, we can't say for sure. Okay? But we do have a couple of really good ideas, and I want to get right into them. But first, I want to say what we do know for sure about God's use of pain and suffering. First, we know that God is good and would never hurt us needlessly or more than is necessary to accomplish the purpose He has for it. Second, God loves us dearly and will always seek, even in using pain and suffering, our best interest and highest good. Third, being omniscient, God actually and truly knows what is best for us and the best way to achieve it. Fourth, we know that His thoughts and ways are much higher than our thoughts and ways, meaning that there'll always be a lot that He will do that we simply can't comprehend, which leaves room for faith and trust. Fifth, most importantly, Again, we have seen that He is fully worthy of our faith and trust. That's what we know for certain. A couple of reasons why He might use pain and suffering in our sanctification process. Well, again, let me sum up. Because of the five points above we mentioned, we can know and accept for good reasons known only to Himself God has in His wisdom decreed pain and suffering as a good and necessary element of His perfect plan for increasing our sanctification and drawing us near to Himself. This said, we can offer two possible reasons why God uses pain and suffering. First, we need it. We need it. We're so dead. Even after a generation, Regeneration, we continue with these indwelling sin, the broken, fractured remnants of it. God is our Father, our Redeemer, our adoptive Father, means for us to be sanctified and holy. 1 Thessalonians 4, 3, For this is the will of God, your sanctification. We have been raised and we live in a culture that has at best marginalized God while exalting the felt needs and self-esteem of man, which along with the old remnants of the old man that live inside of us cannot help but even give mature Christians a strong, strong tendency towards being very self-centered and materialistically driven. Quite often, pain and suffering are needed 
as the only way that God can get our attention to wean us from an inordinate love of the world and of ourselves and teach us what is really good and best for us. God will give us what we need to help our sanctification process, to help us draw nearer to Him, including pain and suffering if necessary, rather than what we might want. I want to give you again John Flavel's eight set of reasons as to why God ordains suffering for His children and the spiritual benefits that come from it. One, to reveal, deter, and mortify sin. Two, to produce godliness and spiritual fruit. Three, to reveal the character of God. Four, to relinquish the temporal for the eternal. One, by loosening the believer's grip on temporal and earthly things. Two, by showing the believer the vanity of this world. Three, by revealing the true nature of comfort. Four, by making the believer long for heaven. Reason five, to produce a sincere faith devoid of hypocrisy. Six, to encourage fellowship with God through word, prayer, and the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. Reason seven, to bear witness to the world. Reason eight, to cultivate communion with Christ, the greatest sufferer. Now, one other reason God might well send pain and suffering to His children he is allowing certain select children to suffer, share in the sufferings of Christ. We talk this is a special case of suffering that comes from active persecution, which can be physical and intellectual as well. For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for His sake. Note that suffering for His sake is a high privilege that is granted to you. So, with respect to general suffering, okay, general suffering, God deems it best to send us pain and suffering for us to thereby grow in faith and trust of Him, to more fully develop the fruit of the Spirit in our lives, to increase our sanctification, to grow into a fuller assurance of our salvation, as we exercise faith and trust. I want to repeat again. I read this at the first of the course. I want to read it right here at this point. It's a quote from C.S. Lewis in his book, The Problem of Pain, which we're going to be going into. I am not arguing that pain is not painful. Pain hurts. That's what the word means. I'm only trying to show that the old Christian doctrine of being made perfect through suffering is not incredible and not incredible. To prove it palatable is beyond my design. I'll take the same out there that he took. Uh, I can only say this. When you're in heaven, and you behold God's face and see the wonderful tapestry that He has woven out of your life and the purposes and the ends He has accomplished through it, even through pain and suffering, you will not wish to have changed one minute of your pain and suffering on earth. 
will only fall down and praise before Him for what He has done in you and what He has allowed us to share with others and in the sufferings of Christ. That's what you hold on to in faith and trust. Now, I'm going to look a good deal more on the nature of God's love for His children. This is what I really want to hit. We're still on reasons now, not on suffering itself. After we look at the nature of God's love, when we teach our section on suffering, we have not taught on suffering yet. We have taught on reasons for suffering. Okay? I want to go more deeply. If you want to get a good book and really good book and read it, get C.S. Lewis's book, The Problem of Pain, wherein he describes the intolerable compliment of God's love. The intolerable compliment of God's love. What a well-named thing. It's very good. Any questions? Huh? Compliment. The intolerable compliment. God pays us a compliment of loving us in such a way that it's intolerable. Is what he's saying. <laughs> and it's true. Lewis is a great wit. Oh, man. Nobody has any questions? Comments? I even take criticisms. Just don't ask me to inflate your tire if it's out. No, just kidding. I always go, I've gone to Joey, I've gone to Zach, and I say, show me what I've done wrong. Tell me where I can improve. Tell me what, you know, this. And I'd say the same of y'all. Ask in class. I don't know. Your warrant for applying what Paul says to unbelievers, to us, exclusively, and I'm sorry, I didn't understand the question. Might be because of my hearing aids or not. So you've used um, Paul's statement in Athens, in him we live and have our being. Yeah. Uh, as a special privilege of the Christian, but I thought that that was addressed to all men. I don't know if it was. I haven't studied it that much. I think it is. I would say if it was, it would certainly have different applications uh, to unregenerate and regenerate. What does? There, I think he's simply trying to prove the true God and that uh, all exist in the hell. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it's the same. It, to me, it would be kind of like uh, we all have God as our creator. But he's only really father to certain certain ways. Yeah. Live by God's permission, yeah. he created. Good point. The implications are different. Yeah. Yeah, the implications would be different for us. Yeah. This is what you're saying. Yeah. I'm just saying it's all. I won't tell you what. We still got two or three minutes. When my pastor asked me a couple of years back, Bill, would you develop a Sunday school course on pain, suffering, and death? Oh, wow. Yeah, just what I want to teach. <laughs> Here comes Bill with pain, suffering, and death. And, uh, but it's, it's been a dramatic change in 
especially this part here with my view of God. Now, I'm going to tell you this, and y'all are fortunate, uh, blessed to have a man of Joey's caliber going through Job with you. I've come to think that Job is the most magnificent book in the Bible. It's just, to me, it's, it's beyond grasping. It's just, uh, it's got every single thing in it. Uh, and it, uh, I told my other Sunday school class to read it before I spoke on it, and I'll spend next week and probably half the week after that on it, but it is just a phenomenal, phenomenal book. Uh, and it's one that I never even one-tenth comprehended since I started going through it more slowly and thinking about looking at what's done and said. Elihu, I mean, that's one of the greatest characters. It's... Uh, Anyway, I look forward to it. Thank y'all. Joy, you close us in prayer. Oh, holy God in heaven, we bless you. You have revealed to us a glorious sovereignty, a perfect desire for your own glory, and thus you allow us to behold it and to experience it, even as our catechism teaches us that whatever you do in our lives is according to your glory and our good. Help us always to remember that, Lord, when you will send afflictions, that uh, it's not just for your glory, it's for our good, for they cannot be separated. So we bless you, Lord, for this wonderful uh, delving into your character, and help us, Lord, to meditate on this and not forget it. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Antioch Presbyterian Church. For more information about Antioch, visit us at our website at antiochpca.com.